be looking today in Hebrews chapter 6, concluding our short series of messages I simply called About Heaven, About Heaven. And I appreciate all of you who've uh, been so encouraging over the course of this. Uh, I've certainly enjoyed uh, sharing with you the things we have. Uh, today we're going to be looking at uh, the conclusion of this. I call it both sure and steadfast. Let's stand together, please, as we reverence the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 7. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And may God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. As we approach this great passage in the book of Hebrews, uh, describing our hope of heaven, as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. We might well ask ourselves the question, why exactly does our soul need an anchor? Five chapters later uh, in the book, uh, you'll find the famous Hebrews chapter 11, uh, the roll call of faith. As so many of that great cloud of witnesses are called up to testify, to share their testimony, if you will, of their faith. And the writer of the book of Hebrews would say this in verse 13, These all died in faith. These all died in faith. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. This presents to us, you see, the motive behind this whole passage, this whole discussion. Why does the soul need an anchor? We know the reality of death is something that looms over us for our entire lives, but it starts out kind of being like a distant cousin. That we know we see them maybe once every year or two at a family gathering. We kind of know who they are. Just a distant cousin. Shows up every now and then. But as we go along in life, that distant cousin starts showing up more and more. As we get old, he moves in. It's like he hangs around all the time, shadowing our life, touching the people we love the most. It is against that concept that the writer of the book of Hebrews sets the principle of our hope of heaven as an anchor of the soul. We need an anchor of the soul that death itself can't dislodge. And in Jesus Christ, that's what we have. 
You see, there's a lot of things in life that we might not be completely certain about and a lot of things we might wonder about and question and doubt and I could give you a long, long list of things this morning that I'm really not all that certain about. Uh, I'm uh, 59 years old now and I've enjoyed the benefits of electricity all my life but I'll be honest with you today, I still don't understand really how the stuff works. I'm glad when I go over there and flick a switch that it comes on. But I'm really not altogether certain about what it is. But I'm not going to sit around in the dark until I do. There's a lot of things that I'm not certain about that really doesn't bother me. But if I wasn't certain about heaven, I'd be bothered. And if you're not certain about heaven, I hope the Lord bothers you about that today. Because I've got an answer for you. It's right here in Hebrews chapter 6. This hope of heaven can be sure and steadfast. Now in order to make this point, the writer of the book of Hebrews is going to go all the way back to Genesis and the promises that God made to Abraham. And specifically, he's going to bring up that incident when Abraham was told to offer Isaac on the altar. Abraham responded, Fully confident, as he told Isaac before he ever got there, God would provide for himself a lamb. And I'll tell you again, as I told you last year when I preached through that passage, that God never intended for Isaac to die on the altar that day. That wasn't the point of that story. Uh, and Abraham knew that. That's why he said God will provide for himself a lamb. And that's exactly what he did. Amen. And that's exactly what he did for Abraham. That's exactly what he did for Isaac. That's exactly what he did for every one of us. But after that scene played out then came this passage in Genesis 22 and 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and, I have, and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Of all the strange things that played out there on Mount Moriah that day, this must have been a strange thing to behold. The God who said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be a firmament, there was one. The God who spoke, and the universe became, whose word is absolutely powerful and trustworthy, suddenly made an oath. Now we, We're familiar with the concept when we put our hand on the Bible, raise our hand, uh, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me. Yeah. Now I'm not sure what formula God followed when he swore an oath, but if he followed something like that, he would have raised his hand and said, I swear, so help me. Me. There was no one else, of course, for God to swear by. And so he swore by himself. And that's what he told Abraham. I have sworn by myself. Don't you know that the angels would have been a little puzzled? What, what in the world is going on? Look at there. God is making an oath of all things. 
Well, this whole story you see that was playing out was about the seed of Abraham. And that seed referred to Jesus Christ. And Abraham's and Isaac's obedience on that uh, was a picture of Jesus' act of obedience on the cross. It's described in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8 uh, where the Bible says, Being found in fashion as a man, he, that's Jesus, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's what was playing out that day. That's what was being showed to Abraham in that marvelous picture book kind of way. And the lamb that God provided that day was none other than the one that John the Baptist described in John chapter 1 verse 29 when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now the writer of the book of Hebrews goes all the way back to that story and brings it up. The time that God didn't just give his word, but the time that God confirmed it by an oath. I swear by myself. And the purpose for all this was for God to give us an anchor of the soul that is both sure and steadfast. Now, the terms that are used here require us to understand a little bit about what that anchor is because there are all kinds of anchors, and, and you and I know that. The one that's being described in this passage is the one that is used to anchor a boat or a ship. And therefore, the terms have a particular a nautical uh, kind of definition. Uh, you see, sometimes you drop an anchor down uh, and it, it appears to hold. But then after a while, you begin to notice that the wind is still pushing you along. And though the anchor has been dropped and though it does appear to hold and it's certainly slowing you down, it's still moving along. It's not in anything solid down there. And so it's still moving. But when the anchor hits something solid and it holds against the wind, the nautical term for that was it is sure. It's sure. It's holding something solid. And I'm not moving. But even when that happens, there's still a possibility, you see, that some big gust is going to come along or, or some huge wave is going to come along. And maybe the combination of the two, a, a huge gust of wind and a, and a big wave might dislodge the anchor. But when it doesn't, when, you, when you've taken the biggest gust and you've got hit by the biggest wave and your anchor holds, it's steadfast. It's sure. It's in something solid. It's steadfast. It has taken the hit. The wind, you see, is relentless. Wind has no compassion whatsoever. It has no uh, <laughs> makes no difference to persons. It's always there, constantly blowing. When your anchor holds the end against the wind, it is sure and steadfast, solid. The Bible doesn't leave us to wonder what is the anchor of the soul. It is the hope of heaven. Remind ourselves this morning that the hope that is presented biblically is not the hope of something that might happen as in we say, as in when we say, well, I hope. 
uh, that I get a new car for Christmas or I, I hope that I'm going to get this or I hope that I'm going to get that. Uh, that, that is not the hope that is presented in Scripture. Uh, the hope that is presented in Scripture is the hope of anticipation. I know it's coming, but it's not here yet. And because it's not here yet, I'm just hoping for it. I, I know it's coming. There's no doubt about it. I live by a simple mantra that goes along all the time. You know, it's, and, it, and today it would be expressed this way. It's Sunday, but you know what? Sunday's coming. Uh, when you're in the ministry, that's constantly on your mind. Sunday's coming. It's Monday, but Sunday's coming. Tuesday, Sunday's coming. Wednesday, Sunday's coming. It's always there. Every day I'm looking forward. I get one Sunday behind me. I'm planning for the next one. It's just always there. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Sundays are coming. I'm telling you what. It's the end of August. <laughs> but September 2nd is a coming. I, I like it. Sunday is a coming. The Bible uh, points us to a time when we're going to have an eternal Sunday. Uh, that, that's, that's heaven. We're, we're going to be gathered together with God's people. We'll enjoy the presence of God. We'll worship Him forever. There'll never be a noon or 11 o'clock. Never going to happen. Not going to be a sound system, Brother Bill. Don't need one. It would not be heaven if you had to have a sound system. I'm telling you right now. No offense, Brother Paul. All these wires running everywhere, the things always mess up. And no, no sound system, no power cords in heaven. Uninterrupted, unbroken fellowship with God's people and the worship of God and the Lamb. God promises us an eternal Sunday. And that eternal Sunday is more more settled in my mind than September the 2nd is. I might not live to be September the 2nd. You might not either. Jesus might come before September the 2nd. But that eternal Sunday, the Bible calls heaven, the hope of heaven. I'm not hoping for it because I wonder about whether it's going to happen or not. I know it's coming. It's just not here yet. And because it's not here yet, then that is our hope. But that hope, that hope of heaven, that anticipation is the anchor of our soul. There's four things I want to share with you this morning about how that anchor is sure and steadfast, what that means for us. It's revealed in three very simple ways, or four very simple ways in this passage. And it, of course, begins with the promise of God. Verse 13, God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater. He swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he, that's Abraham, obtained the promise. One of the most fundamental truths of God's character is that he cannot lie. That's spelled out for us in Scripture in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Second Peter comments on that, gives us another look at it when he said, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all 
should come to repentance. Now, even today, we sometimes promise more than we can deliver. And against the demand of someone who expects us to do what we said we would do, we say, man, give me a little slack. I need a little slack here. Give me some slack. I mean, it's the husband who is confronted by his wife saying, when are you going to fix this? You told me you were going to do it. And he says, honey, it's only been a decade. Give me some slack. I'll get to it. I'm guilty. I promise it. I will. It's going to happen someday. But God never asked for slack. If you wonder where that expression came from, came out of this passage. God never asked for slack in the fulfillment of his promises. If he's not doing it as fast as we think he should, uh, it's not because God needs some slack. And that's what Simon Peter tells us. Uh, the reason why, you see, even then, the promise of the second coming of Jesus Christ was seen to be dragging on and on. Before the last question the disciples asked Jesus before he left this world is, you know, is it time now? <laughs> Are you going to establish a kingdom? And the angels took him up. What they did? They stood there looking. I'm wondering if he's coming back yet. He's been gone 30 seconds at least. Come on. Now Simon Peter's an old man. It's been a long time for him. But the old man Simon Peter was saying, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. He's not like men who need slack in fulfilling them. No. Mm -mm. God had a reason. He is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, God had a purpose. It's been a long time since Jesus made that promise. A couple of millennia have almost passed, and, and, and we're still waiting for the fulfillment of that promise. But it's not because God needs slack. It's because God is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The gospel is still being preached. Churches are still uh, proclaiming the truth of the gospel and teaching the truth of the Bible. People are still being saved. Their lives are still being changed. And the long-suffering of God, it's not that God needed slack in fulfilling His promise. It's that God is being long-suffering, giving more people around the world chance to be saved that's what Simon Peter said there's a reason why men put their hands on a Bible and swear an oath raise their hand and swear so help me God there's a reason why a contract is drawn up and we have to sign it 4,987 times I know this is revelation to you but Men are inclined to lie. They don't always tell the truth. And that's why we require an oath. That's why we have to sign documents so many times, not just once, but again and again and again. But God gave His Word, and He confirmed it by an oath so that this promise is tied in a double knot he gave his word, that was enough, but he confirmed it by an oath, that was even more. And the writer of Hebrews tells us why he did it. 
so that we'd understand that this promise is absolutely dependable. God wants us to have an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and that anchor is His promise to us. Confirmed promise. Then he he tells us a little bit more about why. Why did God do this? So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose... He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. We don't say immutable every day. And so I pulled up this uh, ESV this morning because it used the word unchangeable. Two unchangeable things. And that is God's word and then God's oath. Two unchangeable things in Psalm 119 in verse 89 the Bible says forever O Lord thy word is settled in heaven the anchor is sure and steadfast it does not slip it does not pull out the promise of heaven is absolutely sure and certain but then he tells us he says that these two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The anchor holds. The anchor is sure and steadfast. It is solid. It's unmovable. The question is, Are we going to hold on to the hope rope? That was the question in the book of Hebrews. The writers mention it again and again. Hebrews 2 and 1, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Hebrews 3, 6, But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if, We hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Hebrews 3.14 But we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Hebrews 10.35 Cast not away, don't turn loose, cast not away. Therefore your confidence which hath great hope of reward. It isn't the promise of God that's in question, but there is very much a question as to whether we will continue to hold on to these promises or whether in our hearts we'll let them slip. I want to be very careful to remind you this morning that Right of the book of Hebrews is not talking about the possibility that we might somehow turn away from God and lose our salvation. Such a thing is not taught in Scripture. He's talking about our hope of heaven that's given to us as an anchor, both sure and steadfast. The whole reason the book of Hebrews was written was because the Jewish Christians were becoming uncomfortable with all the things that was happening, all the changes that were going on, seeing all the Gentile uh, churches, everything that was coming. And many of them were just thinking, well, I need to retreat back to some old safe grounds, some old solid ground. I'm not sure about all this. I, I, I think I'll just go back to temple and 
and just start worshiping God. I mean, that, that was sure. They knew that. that. That was solid to them. And so really the whole purpose behind the book of Hebrews was to remind them that Jesus Christ is what's solid. Jesus Christ is our anchor. Jesus Christ is the one that has entered into the veil. Jesus Christ is the one that is sure and steadfast. And if you think you're going to turn loose of him and grab a hold of something else, you're wrong. Don't do it. Don't do it. What the whole context of the book of Hebrews was all about that. It wasn't a time to go back. It was a time to go on with Jesus. No matter where it leads, we're safer for following him. Amen? We can't lose our salvation, but we can give up on our hope. Circumstances, life, suffering, pain, sickness, difficulties. The ongoing two steps forward and three steps back battle with sin that just seems like a just roller coaster ride, constant disappointment. Our anchor is sure and steadfast. And the reason why that God went to all the trouble, not just to give us his word, but then to confirm it by an oath, was because he knew that we might be tempted to let go of that rope, the hope rope. And he gave it to us then so that we'd have strong consolation, strong encouragement. Not to give up. So if there is the promise, and there is, and there's the purpose, and there is, you need to also see the place. Verse 19 tells us we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor, the soul of hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. This is not just heaven, folk, but this is the very presence of God. The very throne room of God. We talked about this a little bit uh, a moment ago, but I want to remind you the best anchor in the world is only as good as what it grabs on the bottom. And if it's a muddy bottom, let me tell you something, it will not hold your 14-foot boat even against a fairly mild wind. It will pull out, it will pull along, and somebody's going to come along with one of those ski boats throwing out waves that high and wash you out on the bank. I don't care how good your anchor is. If it's on muddy ground, it's not going to hold. Anchor is only as good as the, what it's settled in. <laughs> Aren't you glad the Bible tells us that our anchor is set in heaven itself? In heaven itself. Into the place, not just any place there, but he's gone in behind the veil, behind the curtain of the very presence of God. Those of us who have fished very long, you know that sometimes the anchor grows, uh, grabs a hole so solidly that you can't pull it out. And if you want to go home, you've got to cut the rope. That kind of fits the imagery pretty well. We've got an anchor that won't pull out. 
And it's anchored in heaven itself. In heaven itself. And last, of course, there's the person where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. No, you see, the presence of Jesus in heaven is the source of all this promise. When God promised Abraham and thy seed shall all nations be blessed, that seed was Christ. Romans chapter 4 and verse 1 tells us this. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. This is the righteousness of God, which is by faith. It comes to us when we understand that Jesus Christ came to this earth as a fulfillment of all of these long-awaited promises of the Jewish Messiah. He was born in a stable in Bethlehem to the Virgin Mary. He lived then a sinless life. He died a sacrificial death on the cross. They buried him, but he didn't stay dead. He came out of that tomb three days later, and now he is in the presence of God, exalted, standing there as the forerunner, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us. You know what that means? means he's an advanced scout, scouting unit. Anybody in the military knows what that is? <laughs> uh, when the skirmishers, you know, you got a big army coming. And they'd put the skirmishers out in front. And when they encountered the skirmishers of the other army, and they began to hear the battle begin to play, then all the army would converge. Jesus Christ is our forerunner. He's the advanced scout. Where is he? He's in heaven. What's he there to do? He's there to proclaim your victory and mine. We're all coming. Mighty army of God are going to one day assemble on those streets of gold, behind those pearly gates, on a forever Sunday. And I've said it many times before. I just hope I get to preach one time. <laughs> one time. <laughs> it might last forever, but Tony, I just want... No. Have to let me. Oh, I want to remind you today that apart from believing on Jesus Christ, your soul has no anchor at all. I also want to remind you that when we think of an anchor, and as I've said many times over the course of this message, we immediately bring up the imagery of the howling winds and the crashing waves. Threatening to blow our ship up on the rocks. Or our anchor's down steady. That's not the only thing that an anchor helped him with. There's something else. We know about that one too. Much more subtle than the howling winds and the crashing waves. Just as real. It's called current. Current. Current sneaky. It moves you along without you even knowing it's there. If you're in a boat, it can drift you a long, long ways. If you're not paying attention, it can have you a long way from where you need to go. If you're in a boat, it's okay. However, if you're swimming in the ocean and all of a sudden you realize you're in a riptide, it's pretty scary. Gets scary and quick. I, I've been in that situation once and found out current is nothing to play with. But your boat has an anchor 
and it holds against the current. So that even if the wind is not howling and the waves aren't crashing against our life, I want you to know something. The current of this world and the current of sin is always pushing against you. And if you're not careful, it'll pull you away. And in fact, the very words in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1 that were translated in our English translation, if at any time you'll let them slip, actually could literally be translated. If at any time you should drift away. Drift away. Why? Why does a soul need an anchor? Well, the reality of death. We need an anchor that death can't dislodge. I'm glad to be able to tell you today our anchor is sure and steadfast and death can't take it away. But we need an anchor in life as well because the wind blows and it's relentless. The waves come, it's relentless. The anchor is solid, you can depend on it. But even when the winds aren't howling and the waves aren't howling, the current, the current is always pushing us ever away from God, ever toward the flesh, ever toward our weakness, whatever it might be. But the anchor, the anchor holds. Do you have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll? Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. If you don't, I'd love to be able to take the word of God and show you how heaven's anchor can be yours. Let's stand together.